I had the opportunity to stop that mess from happening. And yet I did nothing. Neither by my words nor my presence did I do anything. I could have gone over there and like beat him up to make him stop doing that. Could have just told him to stop. But I did absolutely nothing. And when I didn't do anything, now we've got a huge mess to clean up that's going on even to the carpet of the stage, which wasn't intended. (laughs) And that mess will stay there, and in fact it will continue to grow as long as nothing is, is done about it. A lot of times in life we're trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, but we so desperately don't want to do the wrong thing that we just do nothing. And my proposition this morning is that when it comes to doing the right thing, when it comes to the truth, doing nothing is the wrong thing. And we're going to look at another story in the life of David where he does absolutely nothing. And the ripple effect that begins from there is huge. Actually, you go all the way back to Bathsheba, and he starts to sin, and we get told that that's going to just affect his entire family. And we get a window into that today, whereas David does nothing, the ripple effect of consequences is going to continue. When if he had just been there, when if he had just said something, it would have made all the difference. What if there was a way that once a mess has started that you could go in and kind of contain it? What if there was a way where if if a mess has already kind of fizzled up, that there were things that you could do to contain that so that it wouldn't grow any more? Doing nothing is not one of those ways. Just by practicing your presence and your words, that can make a huge difference in stopping some mess that has already started or preventing ones that haven't even begun. I mean, think about all the things that we we could have prevented if somebody had just said or done something. I mean, think, if somebody had got a hold of Walt Disney when he was dreaming up It's a Small World, we could have just (laughs) bypassed that whole thing. Or think about like if you had a company, a Fortune 500 company that you were the president of, and you heard that one of your employees was skimming some money off the top, and you were just like, ah, whatever, it's no big deal, we'll let that slide. Pretty soon, two or three employees are taking some of your profits, and you're like, ah, it's no big deal at all, just whatever. Five, six, or seven of them are doing it, and you're like, really, just no biggie, keep going. Pretty soon, three quarters of your company is taking your profits. It won't be long before that company goes absolutely bankrupt. Because in the moment where you should have been there, in the moment where you should have said something or done something and didn't, the mess just continues to grow. What if someone 
abused your son or your daughter. And you yourself did nothing. And the police did nothing. And the courts did nothing. What if someone raped your wife or your girlfriend or your sister? And you yourself did nothing. The police did nothing. And the courts said, eh, whatever. Would any of you be mildly irritated if that took place? Cool. One of you. Thanks. That's good. (laughs) We have to do something. There are messes in our lives individually where the ripple effect is just continuing to grow while we remain silent and while we remain absent. There are messes in this world where the ripple effect is continuing to grow where if we remain silent and absent from those situations, the mess will continue to grow. And cleanup needs to take place. There's a guy that started the organization World Vision worldwide organization and you adopt kids and send them you know 30 bucks a month and it sponsors kids all over the world the guy that started that is a man named bob pierce and in the 1950s he started world vision because he said most people because they can't do everything do nothing most people because they can't do everything do nothing and that's pretty true I think most of us look at the scope of the world and the mess that it has become and we go, wow, this is just so far beyond anything I could do. So we do nothing. I kind of rewrote that too because I began to think about it a little bit more. Why do we do nothing? And I think also most people, because they themselves have screwed up in the past, they say nothing. And then I also think that most people because they fear being rejected, say and do nothing. And we're going to see these principles played out in the life of David as we open up to this passage this morning out of Second Samuel, where David really, because he was absent and silent, contributed greatly to a mess that was already brewing and doesn't contain one um, as it really starts to explode. So if you have your Bible this morning, Second Samuel, if you turn open to that, chapter 13. What's going to happen here, I'll explain it and then we'll kind of read through it. What's going to take place here is that David has got these two sons that we're looking at here. There's one named Amnon, he's David's oldest son, and Absalom. They're brothers, but they're from different mothers. Absalom has a full sister named Tamar, and Amnon, the other brother, falls in love or lust with his half-sister. And he wants her so desperately that he's just miserable. He's sulking around and he concocts this scheme where he plays like he's sick. He's going to play like he's ill 
and then ask that Tamar is the one that brings him some food and some drink to take care of him. And while in this kind of faked out situation, while they have the opportunity to be alone together, then Amnon is going to have the opportunity to take advantage of her. And he does. And Amnon rapes Tamar, his half-sister. He kicks Tamar out after that. Doesn't want anything to do with her. In a moment here, you get this picture that he didn't really love her at all. He just wanted her physically. It's a really horrible situation. Well, Absalom, Amnon's brother, and the full brother to Tamar is, is pretty upset. But he just kind of bides his time scheming for a way to get revenge. When David finds out about it, he does absolutely nothing. He gets really upset, but he doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. And in fact, because he's not even really present in the lives of his sons the way he should be, he doesn't even catch the warning signs before it takes place. Two years pass where David, as king and father, doesn't do a single thing. And after two years goes by, there's this big festival that's going to take place. And it's usually the king's responsibility and duty to go to this festival. And Absalom comes and says, hey, dad, David, would you come to this festival? And again, David just decides to remain absent. And he says, no, I don't want to go. He comes up with excuses. He says, just have your brother Amnon represent me. He's the prince. He's the next one in line. So that's just second best thing. And Absalom been kind of planning for a while. And he goes, well, this is pretty cool. My dad, the king, isn't going to be there. So I'll just go ahead and use this opportunity. And Amnon, I don't know if he thought he'd gotten away with the rape thing or whatever, but he decides to go to this festival knowing his brother is going to be there. He arrives at the festival and Absalom orders his men to kill Amnon, to kill his brother. Revenge on his sister there. And where's David in the midst of this? What's his reaction in the midst of this? This series, we've been looking a lot at the consequences of sin and the sins of the Father and the ripple effect of sin and how that just branches out. But today I just want us to focus on really your presence and your words being this deciding factor in the ability to prevent these messes from taking place in the first place or to contain them once they do happen. And so we dive in right here. 2 Samuel chapter 13. In the course of time, it says, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Verse 3. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. 
first window into the reality that David's just totally absent, that he's not even around. That this guy Jonadab, which is Amnon's cousin, is the one that looks and sees this haggard expression on Amnon's face. Amnon's cousin is the one that notices that Amnon is bummed out. It's not David. David wasn't in a position of relationship enough to see the signs on his son's face that something was the matter. He was completely gone. You guys, half the battle in containing messes that have begun, half the battle in preventing messes that haven't started yet, is just being there. Is just your presence in the context of your friendships, in the context of your family. Just being there and developing a relationship is really half the battle. Because in the context of that relationship, you you earn the right to share, but you also start noticing the warning signs. You see the expressions on people's faces. You know what hurts them. You can just get that sense when they're in trouble. And sometimes that allows you the ability to prevent it before it even happens. Well, the cousin is noticing. It's not David. And so this mess that is just about to bubble over, and David's not even there. It's that much harder for him to keep that from happening because he's just not present. And then if you continue on, after the rape has taken place, Tamar is, is pretty upset as is understandable. Look at verse 19. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Oh, be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. It just says, King David heard all this, and he was furious. End of story. It was right for him to be angry. That was a righteous anger. He was upset at what had taken place. And yet, that's where it stopped. It wasn't enough that he just got angry. But he is a lot like us in this way, I think. Where we get pretty upset at unrighteousness and the truth being trampled down. We get upset when people are hurting other people. And yet, I know for me, I just kind of stop there most times. I get really upset about it, but I usually don't do anything about it. And I think God is calling us out to be people that are there in the moment and that say things when they need to be said so as to kind of contain and stop this ripple effect of just the horrible mess that goes on in so many different situations. But I think it comes back to that concept that most people, because they themselves have screwed up in the past, end up saying nothing. 
That's a huge reason why we just don't say anything. And I think it's true for David. I think at this moment when he heard about this rape situation, this adulterous situation, that I think he just kind of went, wow, man, I should do something. I'm his dad. I should punish him. I'm the king. But he probably had that little voice that a lot of us get when we get in those situations where we see some injustice being done and we know we should say something and we know we should do something. And that little whisper comes in that says, who are you to speak truth into this situation? After all the stuff that you've done, you're really going to get on your high horse and speak up about this. And so we just shut our mouths. So we just remain silent. When that was really the exact wrong thing for David to do. I know that in the moment where he thought, man, I am so angry, I've got to go do something about this, that little whisper of, remember Bathsheba? Remember Uriah? You, you, you can't say anything. And that is just the hugest tool of the enemy to bring back our past mistakes to keep us quiet. When the grace of God and the truth of God need to invade a situation and clean it up, and we shut the door on it because we remain silent, because we remain quiet, or because we're completely absent from the situation altogether. Some of you go, well, isn't that just hypocritical? Aren't you kind of a hypocrite if you speak up in those moments? Here's the thing. If you were getting drunk every single weekend, and I was getting drunk every single weekend, and I tried to tell you to stop because it's a bad thing to do, that's hypocritical. But if I had scuffled with drinking too much in college and suffered some pretty drastic consequences to the mess that I had created... And I allowed God to invade that moment, clean it up, fix me, set me on the right path. I I suffered the consequences, but learned from it. And then now I meet you and you're getting drunk every single weekend. I not only have the right, but I think it's the responsibility that I have to come in and speak into your life in that moment and not remain silent. Because who better than me to come in and say, you know what? I actually experienced this and it was awful. The consequences that are going to come from this mess, it's just starting to fizzle over in your life right now, but it's going to get to be way bigger than you think. And I mean, just take my life as as an example. Look at this. This is the exact same thing that David should have done in this moment. He should have stepped in and he said, you know what? You've really got no, I don't know, you, you have an excuse to not listen to me. Because I've made some mistakes. But I've got to tell you, what you just did was wrong. What you just did, we have to fix this. Because if we don't, then the message is going to continue to seep out and the consequences are continue to expand. The cool thing about sharing out of your past mistakes when you need to speak truth, when you need to speak up in a moment where you just want to remain silent, the cool thing is that it sheds a spotlight on God's grace and God's love and power. Instead of a spotlight on your strength 
or your ability to hold it all together. Let me explain. Like if you get in a situation where you got to speak truth and you got to dig up, yeah, in college, I, I, I just really had a lot of problems with drinking. The moment that you say that, it, your pride takes a hit. It's a humbling moment. But then to go, but God in that moment rescued me from this. God in that moment forgave me. God in that moment gave me this uh, clear path. God in that moment began to clean up the mess. God in that moment continued, uh, could contained the consequences that could have rippled out even further than they did. And so in that moment where you speak up, it's a moment to point people toward God and what he did instead of just going, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm I'm strong enough. And it's just a prideful moment. But to go back and say, yeah, I messed up, but God was bigger than that. It's important that you say something. It's important that you do something. It's important that you're there. Otherwise, that mess will continue. David, if you look at Psalm 39, you can keep a finger where you're at and flip over or just check it out on the screen. Psalm 39. Different context that David's talking. He's not referring back to this story, but David wrote this psalm right here. These were words of David's. Psalm 39. Right at verse 1 and 2 here. David said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. David at some point in his life got to the point where he realized, wow, there there were times where I would just not, I, I didn't want to say the wrong thing in the situation and so I didn't say anything at all and when I kept my mouth shut when I was absent and silent that was actually the very wrong thing to do and my anguish increased the mess in my life increased and the mess of the lives of people that I needed to speak to that increased as the story continues on verse 23 Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the borders of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Here's this big, big, huge sheep shaving party. And uh, uh, they were they were hard up for entertainment back then. So, I mean, this was a this was like a big deal. So that every time they're like any excuse to party, we're going to go for it. So we're like, Hey, shaving sheep. That's sweet. Let's throw a big party. And that's what they did. And normally the King would come out and all, everybody would just go out and celebrate, you know, sweet. We got sheep hair and, uh, it's just cool. Um, so Absalom does the kind of the natural thing and he goes to the king and, and, uh, and this is what he says. Verse 24, Absalom went to the king and said, your servant has had shearers come with the king and his officials. Please join me. David replies, no, my son, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. And although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. And in another moment where David should have been present, but wasn't, he just lets that go by. 
another opportunity for him to build relationship and start the containment process on this mess that was spreading. And he lets it go by because he's absent. And he's going to be silent. And right after this, is he's, when David just says, well, okay, we'll take Amnon. Amnon can go in my place. And in his absence, one brother kills another. And it leaves David in this pretty heart-wrenched state. Just saying, man, my son that was going to be king is now dead. And my relationship with Absalom is now really messed up. But he's not going to do anything about that either until it's too late for even Absalom. My proposition again is that doing nothing is the wrong thing when it comes to issues of truth and righteousness. And the messes that have the potential to be created can be stopped by your mere presence and your words. And those that have already begun to fizzle and bubble over can be contained by your presence and your words. You think about like cancer. When people come down with that, I mean, the sooner that you jump in on that, the better. But once it's taken hold and began to spread, it's that much more lethal. And it's the same way with our situations that we get ourselves into. And a lot of times we don't say something or do something because we've messed up in our pasts ourselves. And a lot of times we don't say something or do something because we're afraid of being rejected or afraid of losing that person. And in that moment, we're more interested that people walk with us than walk with God. And that's not okay. It's a tough call to say, I'd rather have you walk in truth. I'd rather have you walk in the light than walk with me. I'd rather have this situation contained than just sit back in silence and let it continue to spread. There's a family in the church here at Cornerstone, the Fraley family. A lot of you know them. A lot of you have been praying for them for a long time. They have a little boy named Micah. And uh, Micah was born with a heart condition that's required him to have several open heart surgeries already at his three, three, four years old. It's brutal. And can you imagine having to make that call, knowing that your son's got that condition? And just kind of going, oh, okay, we'll just, we're not going to do anything about it. Of course not. And yet, it's an incredibly difficult decision to go, well, do we give him this open heart surgery? I mean, that, that is a risk in and of itself. But this Fraley family, several times, has opted to do the hard thing, to take the risk to save their son's life, even though temporarily it makes things harder. In the long term, it makes things better. 
And now you ask Micah or his parents if it was the right thing to make the tough choice and do something. Totally. Because Micah's doing fine. So we got to do something. And I love the words that Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, last passage you're going to look at. You can flip there if you want, nearing the end of your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is such a cool charge to Timothy just to actually do something and be present to prevent some of these ripple effects that that could take place and contain those that have already taken place. 2 Timothy chapter 4, go right at verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead... And stop right there for just a minute. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? That's just kind of a cool reminder, you guys, that that even God himself will always do something. God himself is not going to remain silent or absent. God will always look at situations of abuse and rape and damage and sin and do something about it. He will not just turn the other way and go, oh, Hitler, whatever. A couple million Jews, it's no biggie. He will never, ever do that. It says, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's just huge. It's just a huge call for us to go be there and do something and say something with respect to issues that need to be spoken into. Preach the word and correct and rebuke. Encourage, but with great patience and careful instruction. You don't go in guns blazing, but it's in that context of your presence, of your relationship. That containment and that cleanup, you you go in and you do that carefully. It says, because there will come a time, verse 3, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. He's just saying there's going to come a day. There will be a moment where the world is just going to want to be doing its own thing. And they're going to fight pretty hard against you saying anything. They really want you to say nothing. The enemy wants you to say nothing and to do nothing and to be completely absent from any mess that is out there. Will you do something? When I was in youth ministry and would do talks to junior high and high school about saving themselves sexually for marriage and purity and all of that. I talk of it in terms this way. I think it's fitting for what we're talking about this morning. 
that there's really three stories that you will tell your future spouse someday. One of them, the best story, the first story is, I have saved myself for you. I love you. You're the one for me. There's nobody else that I would want on this planet except for you. When I was in junior high, I heard God's standard for purity and sexuality. And so from that moment, I just saved myself for you. That's a beautiful story. No mess was ever created and didn't need to be contained. You just went for it. Story number two. You're the one for me. I love you so much. I can't wait to get married to you. But before we get married, i got to tell you something. When I was in high school, I screwed up, and I went too far with my girlfriend. And I figured, well, I screwed up. I already blew it, so I just continued to sleep around. And the reality is I've slept with nine people now before I got to you. But you're the one for me. That's not a good story. Or the third story. You are the absolute one for me. I love you more than anything. I can't wait to marry you. But there's something i got to tell you. When I was in high school, I blew it. I went too far with my girlfriend. And I regret that. But then I heard God's standard for purity I heard his word, I heard his truth, and from that moment on, I have saved myself for you. That's a great story too. Because it was contained. The reality is for most of us in this room, most of us in here have already been absent or haven't spoken up in some situation or circumstance when we should have. Just by the nature of us being into adulthood, that's just the way it goes. And so getting to a point now where we go, okay, well, I've already been silent. I've already been absent. Now what do I do? You preach the word. You pursue the truth. You start building those relationships back in, and it may take a considerable amount of time if you've been absent for a long time. This week, it may mean that you cancel a business meeting that you have so that you can go get ice cream with your kid. This week, it might mean writing an encouraging note to a coworker. This week, it might mean telling someone, I love you. I haven't said that enough, but I, I love you. And because I love you, I need you to know that what you're doing is killing you and it's hurting a lot of other people. As the ripple effect of the mess in the world or maybe in your life continues to spread, will you do nothing and allow it to continue? Or with your presence and your words, will you allow the cleanup to begin.
God's grace is the best mop ever. And whatever things have maybe gone out of control, messes that have been ripple affecting outward, we really do, in the hands of our loving, powerful God, have the ability to stop them. But not if we're absent or silent. So my hope and prayer is that each one of you would go out here just to kind of a renewed passion to pour deeply again into those relationships that you've got and not be afraid to speak up when you need to. You guys, you have a great, great week. We love you a lot. If you need something, let us know.